You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers' Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is a freelance writer, blogger, and author of the best-selling series, The Mapmaker Chronicles. She has more than 20 years' professional writing experience. Each week, they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. With students enrolling from all over the world, you can find out more about the Australian Writers' Centre at writerscentre.com.au. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 78 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm here with Alison Tate. How are you, Al? Well, have you ever seen the movie The Incredibles? Yes, I have. I really like that movie. Well, you know how Mrs. Incredible used to be Elastigirl and she's like fully stretchy and she's, you know, can throw herself into a thousand different shapes and they're usually overextended? Yes. That's me. You're, you're Elastigirl. <laughs> I am at the moment, Elastigirl. But that means I, you're also incredible. Well, I'm, yes. Well, I could be. I'm not very good in a stretchy suit, it has to be said, or a okay. unitard, but <laughs> at least I'm not wearing a cape. No, it's one of those things where I sat down today and wrote down all the things that I need to write in the next 10 days oh, and yeah. then practice, you know, promptly hyperventilated. Yes. But that's okay. I'm just one step at a time working through it. Yeah, Working right. through it. Well, What's happening in your world apart from being Elastigirl? Well, it's all partly to do with that. But uh, look, to be honest with you, everything that or a lot of the stuff that I'm doing revolves around the release of uh, book three of the Mapmaker Chronicles on the 29th of September. So it's exciting stuff. It is exciting. You know, like there's lots of stuff going on with that. Um, So, you know, I'm, I'm updating all my websites and writing posts and doing stories and, you know, all yep. sorts of different things. So I'm, I'm immersed and also in the middle of the school holidays. Yeah, right, in the middle of the school mm. holidays. Just so adds an extra dimension. Book three, what's it called? It's called Breath of the Dragon, which, right. as my friends keep pointing out to me, makes it sound like everyone has a hangover, but I'm not going to think about that. And in case there are some new listeners to mm-hmm. our podcast, do tell what is the book about and how does it fit into the overall trilogy? Oh, I'm so glad you asked, Valerie. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Breath of the Dragon is book three of the Mapmaker Chronicles and it wraps up the current trilogy. Um, so the series is about a race to map the world and we're basically in this book into the last section of that race and we get to find out the ending is in this book which is Ooh, very exciting and very I really exciting. like it so I'm really hoping that um, a lot uh, that all the readers like it as well because there are a lot of people emailing me saying I'm desperate to find out what happens yes and I'm just it's just as a writer you just feel the responsibility of delivering on that so mm. I'm hoping that, uh, well, I'm pretty sure it does. I think it does anyway, so let's go with well, that. Well, I'm desperate to know what happens and I have pre-ordered it through Booktopia, so hopefully I'll be one of the first people to get it 
delivered. <laughs> no doubt. No doubt. And then I'll ring you and tell you what I think. <laughs> Excellent. I'll look forward to it. Or you can just tell everyone in the podcast. Yes, that's true. If it's good. If it's not good, you just I'm me. sure it's going to be awesome. I love love the first two and that's why I pre-ordered the third. But anyway, <laughs> I, I wasn't feeling like Elastigirl. Oh, you weren't? And I wasn't feeling incredible. Oh. But now I am feeling slightly overstretched myself because oh. in the boot of my car – I haven't summoned up, summoned up the you know courage or fortitude to take this box, very large box, out of the boot, which I couldn't even carry to the car. Somebody had to carry it to the car for me because it contains two hundred and seventy <sighs> short stories, which I am judging for the Lane Cove Literary Awards. So two hundred seventy. I'm going to be very busy for the next little while. What's and if the you, word length. Uh, 3,000 words. Oh. Yes. Oh, Valerie. I know. But if you have entered the Lane Cove Literary Awards, if any listeners have entered, uh, you know, it's it's a $2,000 prize just for the short story section. There's also $2,000 prizes for um, other sections, which I'm not judging. But in my section, you can win a $2,000 prize. But there, and there are smaller prizes for youth and seniors and, um, you know. I can't believe I didn't enter. I could well, have been 271. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just to yeah. make your life complete. Yes. It's like when you get, on, get to inbox zero and you tell people on Twitter and someone sends you an email just to, you know, be a smart ass. I wouldn't know what that feels like because I have never in my existence <laughs> got to inbox zero. My inbox looks more like the boot of your car. Yes. Well, I won't be reaching inbox zero anytime soon <laughs> while I'm reading my, you know, and judging the 270 <laughs> short stories. So, uh, yeah, that's, but let's move okay. on. Good luck with that. That's all I can say. Yes. Thank you. Let's move on to the world of writing and publishing and blogging this week. Okay, what have you got? Well, the news of the week, of course, is that Bauer Media has announced that it will close Zoo Weekly. Okay. <laughs> the Lads Mag, <laughs> which, of course, we're so terribly sad about, aren't we? Pretty devastated. Although, oh, look, I'm always sad when a magazine closes. Yes. Because I think, you know, that we have to look at this as an industry-wide thing. Mm. We have to look at it from the perspective of freelance writers and we have to look at it from the perspective of, you know, outlets for our yes, work, etc. But, yeah, no, this is not <laughs> one that's probably – I'm not – put this way, I'm not crying into my Wheaties about this. No, and I suppose – look, I mean, I agree that that means that some journalists are out of a job. Well, not just journalists, yeah. but uh, – art directors and all of that are out of a job. But it would be hard now, especially when last month Coles announced, Coles Supermarket announced that it would remove Zoo Weekly from its magazine range. So, you know, and... Yeah, once you're out of the supermarket. Yeah, yeah, it's tough because I know that when I'm doing my groceries, I always pass the magazine aisle and I put something in my basket for sure. And it, it has been known that I've bought the same damn magazine, the <laughs> same issue twice because of this habit that I have. But not Zoo Weekly. Not Zoo Weekly. <laughs> no. I think, it, I think the Lad Magazine market has been an interesting one over the years because, I mean, I remember back, oh, you know, we're talking, how old am I now? Very. Um, <laughs> we're talking late 90s, early 2000s. And it was quite a crowded market at that Very. point. You know, had Picture and People and Ralph and FHM. You know, FHM. And mm. yeah, there were lots. And I knew lots of people that were working for them, you know, in various capacities. I will and confess, in my 20s, I did write for FHM. 
there you go. A couple and of times. <laughs> I just think that, um, like, it's that's you know, you can really see the internet killing mm. that really, like, absolutely death knell on mm. that particular um, genre of magazine, I guess, because you can get pictures of naked girls online. Mm. Lots yes. of them. Yes, or yeah, girls in bikinis, mm. or only some part of the bikinis. Mm. Mm. A little small. Yeah, anyway, let's not talk about it anymore. Okay, so very sad for those journalists, though. Yes, sad. yes. Mm. Let's move on to a very different magazine, and uh, that is uh, Vogue. And oh. this is a link in Mumbrella, and they interviewed Edwina McCann, the editor of Vogue, uh, who took after who took over after Kirsty Clements, who edited Vogue for thirteen years left. And I think it's an interesting interview because one of the things that she's talking about is that, you know, gone are the days where a glossy magazine is just the beautiful glossy magazine that the editor needed to 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 think about because these days you can't just think about the glossy magazine. You have to also think about the digital presence, the social media, um, any forums you might have and all of that sort of thing. So the an editor, if you really want to succeed in today's magazine world, really has to have a whole range of other skills in addition to great editing skills. Have you noticed that in and have you experienced that in the world of magazines, Al? Well, I think that, you know, I see at the bottom of this particular post is that she's presenting um, a case study on how to build a brand, not a masthead, Mm. at next month's published conference. And I think that that is, in many ways, is what editors have to do. I mean, they've always had to run businesses and they've always had to be across a whole range of levels of business. Mm. But now the business has extended into so many different things and it it is not just a matter of building the masthead, so to speak. You really have to look at where your readers are and how you can reach them. And I have to say that Edwina, um, I worked with her years ago at Vogue um, and she was, you know, young and fabulous and she's a very clever cookie and I think that if anyone can... Um, you know, have a finger in all of those pies. It's someone like her. And Mm. I think you have to be that now. You have to be that person. You have to be able, you can't just focus on one aspect of your magazine. You have to actually be able to look at everything all at once. They must work. I'm yeah, sure it must work 27 hours a day, I think, <laughs> just <laughs> to be right. able to keep on top of it. <laughs> and jet around the world. <laughs> oh, exactly, yeah. And I, I am trying very hard to line up a uh, an interview with Edwina for our podcast. So um, keep a, an ear out for that because that will, you know, when she's not in New York, we will be talking. <laughs> yeah, awesome. Yeah. So another thing that is um, – as a result of the evolution of the world of publishing and magazines and journalism is um, a post from a interesting website called High Tech Dad, but the post is called Corporate Storytelling as a Brand Journalist. And it's actually written by somebody who has started a job or who is in a job at Intel as a brand journalist. Now, I thought that this was an interesting point of view because there are so many, any time I mention the word together, brand journalist, I get, um, even though I'm just using it in conversation because it's an actual word or an actual term, I get hate mail and I get tweets and I get comments from people just saying, there's no such thing as a brand journalist. They are two things that are completely separate. How dare you use that term? And like, it's like, 
goodness me, just chill, calm down. Like, do you, do you take offence at the word brand journalist and do you understand or understand why other people take such yes. offence at the word I, brand journalist? Yes, I okay. do understand Go. precisely why they do. Look, I, I think the whole thing, the whole point of, you know, when people talk about journalism, it's supposed to be an objective thing. There's supposed to be people who you know, uh, report stories, who investigate stories, who do all of that sort of stuff. If you're working for a brand, mm. you're being paid by the brand. Yes. You're presenting the brand image. Sure. You know, like I understand the term, like these are people who are writing stories for the brand and I get that. Yes. But it is PR. Sure. It is PR. So can we not just call it what it is? <laughs> could we not say that? If I you guess. Not think. I mean, do so you see what? But you like, you, you can you see that point? Like, if you're an old school journalist, yes, or someone who's grown up in that environment of, you know, particularly some of the newspapers, you know, where you, you weren't even allowed to accept a book, you had to send it back in case there was some yes, sense yes. of, you know, that you were being bribed. Yes, this notion that you can be a brand journalist yes. is very, very dodgy area. You think? Mm, I, I I think do. it's semantics because I think that when you're called a journalist, that certainly definitely has you know certain connotations um, and expectations. But the mere fact that you're calling it a brand journalist means that you're working for the brand. That it means it's obvious that it's not one hundred percent. So don't use the word journalist. You're a brand writer, or you're okay. a, you know your brand PR. You're not a journalist. If you're working for the brand, you're not a journalist. Because okay. a, the whole point of the journalism thing carries that level of objectivity that you're gonna that you're gonna present the story as it should be told, yes. not one side of the story or the other. Sure, but then there are journalists who are writing advertorial, mm. and they they're still called journalists, but it, it is labelled advertorial. But still, it's not. It's but it's not, labelled. Yeah, but it, it's labelled if it's on the Intel website. It's clear it's labelled. <laughs> yeah, uh, look, I, I get, yeah, I get what you're saying with that. But I also think that when you write it, I, I just, you know, if you go out to do a story on somebody as a journalist, yes. then you go out in the, with the, in the good faith. With the, with, it's the ethics question, I think. You're coming right back to the whole journalism ethics question. And I just don't think that if you're, if you're sold to Intel and everything you write is positive about Intel, mm. then you're not a journalist. You are a PR person. You sure. are writing public relations material. Sure. I mean, some would argue that when Robert Scoble worked for Microsoft in that fashion, he was very openly critical about, about Microsoft. Mm. So it, it wasn't all positive about Microsoft. Yeah, but then who's doing that now? Nobody's doing that anymore. Nobody is writing scathing sure. reports about <laughs> brands these days if they want to keep their job. Yes, yes. Nobody. All right. I take your point. I take mm. your point. So let us move on then to um, a link that was on The Right Life. And I thought it was interesting because it's called Working on the Side, How to Fit Freelance Writing Around a Full-Time Job. And I thought that was interesting because there are a lot of people I know who are actually doing that and who are just very slowly transitioning into the world of freelance writing, but they're not ready to take the leap and go whole hog straight away. So mm. they're 
freelancing on the side while they have their full-time job until they can build up enough freelance writing work to make the transition. Now, I did this once upon a time. Have you ever done this? Oh, yeah, of course. Yes. I, I, I think that I personally think that it's the only way. I don't think you wake up one morning and think, I'm going to quit my job and become a freelance writer. <laughs> I think that you, you – I think if you do that, you are setting yourself up for long periods of not having very much to do. <laughs> so I think, I think what happened – so basically, how did I do it? So I had been working – um, as a sub-editor, so on the sub-editing side of magazines for a long time. And it's actually very, very difficult to make the jump from that to being a features writer. It's really yeah, hard to do. It is. Because it is very hard. Particularly if you're good at sub-editing. Yeah. People just want you to keep doing it, you know, know, or back in those days. They it's anyway. weird, isn't it? It's true, though. Yeah. It's a, you know, because it's a valuable asset and they're just like, well, you know, we need you here yes. and you don't have any time. You've got eight hours of sub-edit and you do work so hard as a yes. sub. So I was doing that. And so then what I was doing was I was work. I started writing pieces for the magazines I was working on as a freelancer. So I would go home and I would do them at home. Mm-hmm. And then once I'd done a few of those and I had a bit of a portfolio, portfolio together. I actually left magazines. I was working at Vogue and I'd done a, a maternity leave position as the chief sub-editor and that came to an end and they offered me another subbing job and I thought, no, I'm not going to do that this time. I'm actually going to go and do some, I want to do some writing. Yeah. So I got a job, a public service job oh. at the Sydney Cove Authority as the publications officer oh. and I was writing brochures and I was writing newsletters and things like that. So I did that all day and mm. then I was actively pitching out um, for freelance writing gigs. So that's when I started writing for Cosmo and Clio and those kind of mags. Mm. And once I'd been doing that for a while, I actually got offered the job at Clio as the features writer, mm. as the features editor. So, And how did you – And because people always ask me this question, how did you fit in, you know, your interviews and your research and stuff, well, especially interviews? Uh, interview. Well, you know, the thing is, particularly the stories I was doing, because I was, was, as I said, working for Clio and Cosmos, I was doing a lot of case study work and most of the people wanted to talk to me after hours anyway, right. because they were all at work. And, you know, so, so that was okay. And as far as the experts and things went, I just scheduled my interviews in for lunch hours. Yeah. And, and rang them, you know, I rang them in lunch hours and things like that. Um, I think if you really want to do it, you can do it. You just, you've got to be organized. And then I would go home and, you know, I would write the stories at night and stuff. And at that stage, I was living by myself um, in this funny little studio flat at Centennial Park. Um, I was writing, I'd started writing my romance novels. So, you know, I'd spend a lot of time by myself just, you know, writing bits and pieces and um, I'd write my stories at night and then send them off. You know, that's, um, that's, that's kind of how you do it. But like, it's a little bit like fitting in, like once I had, had children and I was parenting and then I was also writing all my freelance work and then I decided I really wanted to write novels you make time. Yeah, you have to. You, know, you find space for it if you want to and that's that's what you do. And a lot of my stuff happens in the middle of the night still. Yes, for sure. Mm. Yeah, mm. that's pretty similar because I think I started freelancing while I was still working full-time um, as a senior consultant in a PR firm. Mm. And so I was doing, you know, I was just doing client work and client stuff all day. And, yeah, after hours it was a similar situation. I was actually also doing a lot of case study stuff because – I was writing for women's magazines as well. And um, uh, so, yeah, you're right. I was doing those interviews outside of hours or on weekends or or whatever. Um, And then sometimes I might just take half a day off if I needed to. And I try to batch a couple of um, 
experts together, but the mm-hmm. writing itself, yeah, there was no time to write during the day. So I was writing at night, you know, and I, I remember I was in a share situation with a flatmate and my little desk was in the corner um, of the lounge room. So she would be watching TV and she would have to listen to me bashing away at mm. my keyboard. Could writing she hear my anything? Stories. Probably not. <laughs> Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Thank you, Helen. <laughs> <laughs> but I, look, I, I think, I, yeah, look, I just think it's one of those things. I think that you, we, we all make time for the things that we really want to do. Yes. Yes. So you have to think about how much you really want to do it and you can definitely do it around other things. It's just a matter of being as, you know, as you say, organized and um, proactive. Yeah, and writing in snatched time mm. as well, which is, you know, your, your term for it. And I remember, mm. you know, that sometimes you have you, – you're so flat out during the day and then I had to you go sort of meet a friend that evening and what, or to go to the opera or something. And as I was waiting for her just on the steps, I was writing my freelance longhand, yeah, yeah. my freelance yeah. stories longhand. Yeah. Um, but let's move on because we've got quite a freelance writing theme this episode because the next um, uh, link is from the website Make a Living Writing, Practical Help for Hungry Writers, and the post is called Seven Faulty Assumptions That Derail New Freelance Writers. Now, we, we don't have time to go to all of them, but I just wanted to mention a couple that really resonated with me and maybe see which ones resonate with you. But uh, one that really resonated with me, because I hear this from a lot of creative people, is I'm not in a business. I'm not running a business. I, I, wanna, I just want to focus on the writing, which is, you know, what really feeds my soul and what I'm really good at. I don't want to have to deal with GST and Baz and and mm. and and my finances. I don't know what cash flow I've got. Uh, the words cash flow just make my eyes glaze over. And I want to get these people by the shoulders and shake them <laughs> because especially no. I well let me rephrase that. If these people ever complain about not making enough money as a writer, then I want to get them by the shoulders and shake them. Because if you want to make money as a writer, if you want to make good money as a writer, you have to treat it like a business. Even mm-hmm. even if you have that creative side of it, mm. they both go hand in hand if you want to be successful. Oh, God. I I could not agree more than a thousand percent more because I, you know, and I know that I, that would just go to show you how much of a mathematically inclined person I am. <laughs> I'm talking about a thousand percent. Um, I, you, until you actually get to the point where you start to treat your freelance writing as a business and start yeah. to think about things like how many hours will this take me? How many, how much am I earning per hour? Yeah. Is this worth doing? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you just can't get on top of it, you know, and, mm. and yes, writing feeds your soul and it's wonderful and all those sorts of things. But it's a little bit like, just as a parallel, it's a little bit like authors who say to me, I just want to write books. Mm. I'm not in the business of, you know, promoting myself or mm. marketing or any of those things. I just want to write books. And you know what? Like, you know, we'd all love to do that. Yep. But there's 80 billion people out there just writing books. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 80 billion. And yes. if, you, if you want to be one of those people that's actually where whose work is read, you need to do something 
you've got to put a marketing hat on occasionally and you don't have to do it all the time, but you need to do it. And it's the same with um, freelancing. You've got to put your business hat on occasionally and think, am I actually doing something that's actually making me money here or not? Yeah, for sure. And the other Because otherwise one... you'll be hungry. Oh, for sure. Very hungry. You might be hungry. Well, yeah. another reason why you'll be hungry is another uh, one on assumption on this list is uh, I can find clients from Google. Now, what that's referring what? to, yeah, what that's referring to is that people think that they can look up freelance, like Google, you know, freelance writing jobs or whatever. And what invariably ends up happening is they get the, the ad the advertisements from places like Elance or Upwork or freelancer.com or, you know, just content mills essentially. Mm -hmm. And these people are paying next to nothing and it's no good for you to be selling an 800-word article for $20. That's Mm -hmm. just insane. And some people might want to do that, but if if you're living in a – developed economy I think that that's insane but I do actually meet people in developed economies in Australia um, who will actually look up these sites and bid for these these jobs but essentially you're bidding against a thousand other freelance writers many of whom are living in developing countries Mm. where the $20 is a lot Mm. and and they'll do it for that price but Mm. You shouldn't be doing it at the price because you're, you you know, it's... That's, you can't live on that. You can't live on it. $20 for 800 words, is, it's going to take you, say, like, even, if, okay, even if you're writing it off the top of your head, it's, it's an, you're doing an hour's work for $20. Yeah. For most people, for an 800-word article, you're going to have to maybe interview somebody or, you know, there's going to need to be something. Yeah. And if you do that, you know, you're looking at two or three hours for $20. Yeah. And, you know, if you, this is what I'm saying. When you, you have to break things down into how long will this take me? Yeah. Think about it as an hourly rate. You know, it's like anything. It's like working at Coles or, you know, whatever you're doing. You know, you have to think about, well, how much am I going to make an hour? Because that's that's how you pay your bills. But do you know why people do it? No. I've asked people. Oh, good. Yes. I and they do it. <laughs> and they do it because answering an online ad – via email and sending through your, you know, your bio or your resume or whatever is so much easier in their mind than sending a pitch to an editor. So they're, 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 because they're afraid of rejection from the editor, whereas an online ad is just this faceless ad, you know what I mean? Mm. So, and, and, and it's easier to do that than to do the research for a pitch to an editor. So that's why that happens. And then it, these people invariably either get disappointed that they don't get a job, they can't even get a $20 job, or they get the $20 job and they're only paid $20. So, mm. um, so don't just do you yourself do a lot favorite. of $20 jobs to make, to pay a mortgage. Yes. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. Don't do it. Anyway, let's move on. We don't have a uh, writing book this week because both you and I have new writing books on our desks, but neither of us have read them yet. No, we haven't. (laughs) We're absolutely hopeless. I don't know why anyone talks to us. (laughs) So we will be reading them in the coming weeks. But I thought I would mention one word since uh, we recently spoke about mispronunciations. I noticed you were very careful with that, Valerie. Yes, uh, because I was just watching Fox Sports. Well, actually, I wasn't watching Fox Sports. Fox Sports 
was on because my partner had it on while I was doing something in the kitchen. And uh, the commentator talked about how a particular team had done irreparable damage. (laughs) Now, how does one pronounce that, Al? Irreparable. But you were, like, I've got to say this, so you actually listen to Fox Sports a lot more than you think you do because you do bring up these people with their mispronunciations on a regular basis. Uh, well, I think that's a reflection on the fact that my partner watches Fox Sports a lot more. <laughs> He's than... clearly not listening to it for the grammar. Oh, no, but he takes great joy because whenever there's a typo, he takes a photo of it for me and send it to, sends it to me because he knows I'll have a good day. <laughs> <laughs> the little things in life yes. that show he the goes, love. Isn't Look, it? this will cheer you up. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. So funny. All right, moving on. I've got a blog for you this week. Go on. Um, so I just wanted to – there's a, a great American blogger called Tara, and I think it's – speaking of pronunciations, I think it's Lazar, but it mm. could be Laser. Okay. And it's um, a kid lit, so children's literature blog basically and lots and lots and lots and lots of information and it's one of those ones that you know cracks the top 100 you know best blogs in the world kind of stuff on a regular basis she's written a she's written a post this week called five reasons not to self-publish and five reasons that you should okay and what it basically is it's about self-publishing picture books which is probably not something that, you know, comes up that often when you think about it because picture books, if you've never actually thought about it that much, picture books are one of those things that to print is horribly expensive. Very expensive. That's why when they when publishers choose picture books and what they're going to do, they do maybe 10 or 15 a year if you're lucky. Yeah. And they are a big deal because, you know, whatever they've chosen, they're expensive to produce. And the distribution on them is also not that easy. So, like, it's a big mm. deal to do it. Because so it's not books, just the fact that it's colour. It's the, the, the paper stock is thicker and the yeah. cover is usually harder. They are, yeah, they're a lavish production. Mm. They're, you know, they're a thing. They're so, because there's something that's, generally speaking, if, if, if kids love them, they're going to be read over and over, as everyone who is a parent will know, yeah. over and over and over and over again. And, you know, you would pro- have probably got books on your shelf that you had from being a kid. Mm. And, you know, like they're the kind of things that people keep. They're like a treasure. They're a gift. Yes. Um, so they're a big deal. So it's not something I would ever consider self-publishing. I have to say, mm. you know, like I think it's, you know, of all the things, because you can't just do them as an ebook. not really. Like mm. you can. But really, there's something that people want to sit with a kid and turn. Oh yeah, it's the whole and the whole rhythm and meter of turning the page is so essential in a picture book. In Mm. reading them aloud, like it's it's you know there's something that's read aloud and shared and enjoyed. And um, so anyway, so this is um, quite a cool little post about reasons why you shouldn't, reasons why you shouldn't, and basically the reasons that you would, the reasons that you wouldn't, come down to the same reasons that people choose to traditionally publish anything. Yeah, right. They want um, backing. They yep. want, you know, they realise how difficult it is to get things into books. Um, they want input from a creative team. Something that they that a traditional publisher does bring is that if you're not an illustrator, a publisher can attract top-notch illustrative talent because what happens with a picture book is that obviously it's a collaborative thing. You write the text, the illustrator, so much of what happens in a picture book is in the pictures. It's not yeah, in the text at all. For sure. So you have to work together and it needs to be beautiful and all of that sort of stuff. And you share the royalties. That's something else you should think about. Yeah. Um, 
And then she talks about reasons why you should. And, you know, the main reason is that you've got a story that you must tell that isn't commercial enough to secure a traditional publisher Mm. and you like taking risks. Mm. So, you know, look, it's worth having a read of the post, but really I wanted to just bring people's attention to the blog itself. Yeah. uh, If children's literature is is an area that interests them. Yeah, great. So we'll put the link in the show notes, but it's Tara and then L-A-Z-A-R. So Lazar or Lazar yeah. mm-hmm. dot, dot com. com. Yeah. yeah, great. Cool. All right. Well, let's move on to our writer in residence this week. Let's. Who have you got for us? I interviewed Kevin Kwan. Now, Kevin, uh, last year, fairly recently, uh, released his debut novel, which when I saw the title, I was like, who the freaking hell would call a novel that? And it's called Crazy Rich Asians. And oh. and I was like, that's so bizarre. But it took the world by storm. It is an international bestseller. It is in so many languages. It made the bestseller lists of in so many countries that obviously hot on the heels of this success, he now has a sequel um, and his sequel, which is out now, is called China Rich Girlfriend. And the sequel can actually be read as a standalone book. So you don't have to have read Crazy Rich Asians first. Um, you can read China Rich Girlfriend and it makes perfect sense. But obviously, if you, you know, you, you could want to read it in order, go for it. Uh, but I must admit that when I went to the bookshop um, to buy the first book, I, I couldn't actually you know, it was was quite a cluttered bookshop and I couldn't actually see it. And I actually couldn't bring myself to go to the counter and say, (laughs) I'm looking for crazy. Exactly. So I just slunk away and just didn't (laughs) buy the book at the bookshop and bought it online. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Sorry. I'm dissolving into a stereotype. <laughs> Kevin oh. was uh, raised in Singapore, but uh, has spent, you know, studied in America, um, studied creative writing in, in at one of the universities there, and uh, now lives in New York, in Manhattan. And uh, I have no doubt that China Rich Girlfriend is going to also be as big a hit. Uh, it's 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 very lighthearted, but it it. it it describes a world that really has not been written about. Mm-hmm. So uh, let's have a chat to Kevin. Great. Thanks for joining us today, Kevin. Hello. Great to be here. Now, China Rich Girlfriend, this is your second book, but for those readers who haven't read China Rich Girlfriend just yet, can you tell them what it's about? China Rich Girlfriend is like Downton Abbey in Asia, but set in <laughs> contemporary Asia. <laughs> so it's it's really a you know the comedy of manners. It's a romance. It's an adventure story, all set in modern day Asia. It hops around from Singapore to Hong Kong to mainland China, and it all concerns this one messy, crazy, filthy rich family. <laughs> and your first book, Crazy Rich Asians took the world by storm. It went on bestseller lists in so many countries. Take us back to your first book, because this is where it all started. How did the idea for that particular book come about? When did you start thinking, oh, I might write this book? Because your background is actually design, isn't it? 
Yeah. I, uh, well, my first degree actually was in creative writing. I went to the University of Houston and, and studied creative writing, and this was more than 20 years ago, I think. And I wrote a poem back then mm-hmm. called Singapore Bible Study, mm-hmm. which um, I think was published in you know 1992 or 1993, some, right. somewhere around that time. And it, you know, it, it got quite a bit of acclaim, and it was you know sort of published and anthologized in a few different poetry journals and this and that. And whenever I performed it, you know, I I, I really got such a positive response. Mm-hmm. And the, you know, the poem was really about this world of this sort of crazy rich. Um, Asia, mm. and um, I, I, I even from then I really thought you know I have, it's the seed of something. I really should write about this world that I was exposed to as a child. I, I grew up in Singapore and spent the first eleven and a half years of my life there. But I've you know constantly traveled back to Asia, and every time I, I would go back, I would find you know and encounter this world that was increasingly decadent. And with the decadence came all this drama. You know, I was pulled into lots of family dramas, lots of dramas involving friends. And so I would come back to the States, to New York, where I live, and I would tell friends about what would happen to me on these travels. And, and, you know, over and over again, I kept hearing, you need to write about this. No one is really documenting and sort of portraying contemporary Asia in this way. Um, And so, you know, and it was true. I would go into bookstores and I would see, you know, books by authors like Amy Tan and Lisa C., which really concerned sort of, um, you know, historical China. Yes. Um, and, and they're lovely. You know, I really admire the writing, and I read all those books. And then there was a, another subgenre of what I would call Asian-American literature. Yes. You know, Maxine Hong Kingston, people like that, that would write about the, the, the assimilation stories of Asians into the American culture. But no one was writing, you know, from a Western point of view mm-hmm. about what's happening in Asia right now. Yep. And that's what I felt like I needed to do. It's, it's, and did you always think, oh, it was going to be a work of fiction? Well, I, I didn't want to be sued to high heaven. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I felt that in a way I could tell more of the story and really explore these characters and their motivation yes. um, with fiction versus nonfiction. I yes. mean, a lot of it is based on the truth. And I think that's what makes the book so fun, and I think that's why Asian readers in Asia, in particular, have responded to it so much. Because yes. you know, they, it's sort of to them, it's like Truman Capote, and they're trying to unravel who I'm talking about, which families, which people, this and that. Yes. Um, and so, in in a way, it is a romantic class, but in many ways, it also you know takes a lot of imagination to build these stories out. Yeah, it is unique. There is nothing like it in 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 bookstores these days. Uh, so tell us though, how did you how did you get into design, and how did you then find your way back into writing? Well, this you know this begins in in the writing program. I think um, in a way, my writing was always very very visual, and in fact, one of my instructors actually called me the designer poet. <laughs> Uh-huh. Which at the time I, I took to be quite an insult because you know that there were references to brand names and and design elements in my poetry and in in the creative writing that I did, right. and um, you know I, I decided why fight it? You know I graduated you know after I got my getting my first BFA, I decided to to go to art school, and really explore the the, the visual side of myself, and I thought that if I could really, you know, marry the visual side with the text side. I could really sort of, you know, find a viable job. You know, this was the early days when the internet was first beginning to sort of, you know, be created. And I thought, you know, if I can write and design and take photographs 
I'll be a triple threat. <laughs> yes. It didn't quite work out that way. Um, but I found myself after graduating from design school, you know, with a degree in photography and, and design, that I was working on a lot of books, designing books um, for mm. publishers. Mm. So I started out in the coffee table book world where I was making books for, for people like Oprah Winfrey and for actually Gore Vidal. I did a book of, of his, his, you know, all his snapshots and archives, things like that. Mm. And increasingly finding myself once again, because I could communicate with the writers, um, you know, and, and manage these projects involving writers and designers and photographers, I was finding myself lured back into the world of writing. Mm. And so at, at, at a certain point I said, well, you know, I'm just going to go for it and try writing a novel. So when you decided that and you had people saying, you, you came back from your travels, told all these amazing stories about, you know, the crazy rich Asians in Asia and people saying, you've got to write this in a book. Did you have the plot in your head? Did you start with the seed of a character? How did it actually form into what became the novel? I did have the plot in my head, and I, I think the plot was gestating and sort of growing for, for the past 20 years. Mm. And, and so always there was this idea of, of really introducing the outsider, for example. You know, she's Rachel Chu. She's the protagonist of Crazy Rich Asians. And she's what we call American-born Chinese. Mm. So her ancestry is Chinese, but she's, she's very much an American and really doesn't have a clue what's happening in Asia. So mm. the device was to use her. Um, you know, she gets involved in a romance with Nicholas Young, who is this heir to this ginormous fortune in Singapore. Mm. And through their romance, she gets introduced. She goes to Singapore. She meets his family, and she discovers this world of hidden wealth and all the drama and scandal and antics that go along with it. Mm. So she's sort of our guide into this world. And, you know, it's, it's sort of in a way, you know, many people have compared it to Pride and Prejudice. Mm. You know, the story of Elizabeth Bennet, you know, and, and counting Darcy and, and all the resistance that's met in their romance by his family and, and all that, you know. So that very much was an inspiration. Yeah. So China Rich Girlfriend yeah. is the sequel, but it can definitely be read as a standalone book. Did you have a sequel in mind when you wrote the first one? Definitely. I had envisioned the book really as a trilogy. Right. Um, and I, I wanted to, sh to showcase different parts of Asia. And I wanted to begin in Singapore, which to me represents, you know, the old money culture of Asia. You know, these are people that left China centuries ago, you know, established bases in Singapore, built their fortunes. And then in book two, I wanted to go into that sort of instant wealth world that mm -hmm. represents what mainland China has become. You know, the money is brand new. It's, it's so enormous. It's so brash. And I wanted to explore that world in the second story and then continue that into the third. Does that mean you're currently writing the third or have you finished writing the third? I have not finished writing the third, but it's, it's definitely in, I should say, gestation mode. <laughs> yes. And when you've done that, you've obviously the trilogy is done. Do you, do you have an idea of what you would like to do next? Is that oh, I do. I, I very much do. I, I, I already have an idea for book four. Um, I'm not really ready to sort of reveal the whole theme and concept, but um, it will be a departure, I think. You know, right. I, I feel like I have a lot more to say than just, you know, this sort of crazy rich Asian world. Yes. But I, I think that hopefully it will still have sort of the flavor and style of my books and, and what readers have come to enjoy.
Tess, did you anticipate it would be as successful as it has become? I really, really didn't. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm still shocked, quite frankly, that, that anyone's read the book, <laughs> <laughs> you know, outside of a few friends and family. Um, you know, I was just in, in Hong Kong and the Philippines touring, and it was just the reaction and the response and, you know, sort of, sort of meeting people that, you know, hundreds of people waiting since seven in the morning to come meet me at book signings. That's just, it's kind of unimaginable in a way. Yes. Um, because I didn't really have an audience in mind when I wrote this book. I just yeah. felt that, you know, I, I had to sort of explore this world and, and tell my truth in a way. Yes. And, and just tell it in, in the strange way that I told it. Um, so I, I, I didn't think it would have as much sort of international appeal as it has. Yes, it's certainly not um, just in Asia. I mean, I was in Sydney the other day and my hairdresser was telling um, her other client about this book that she had just read and that it was your book and she just couldn't stop reading it. I mean, it's it's laugh out loud funny. Uh, Yeah, that's that's wonderful to hear. It's just, mm. it's always surprising (laughs) to hear that. So... What do you find, what did you find the most challenging thing about writing, well, either book, about writing generally, writing novels? You know, I, I think the first, for the first book, it's really overcoming the fear yeah. of being yourself and of really sort of expressing in the way that you want to. Um, you know, there's so much self-doubt and yeah. even halfway through writing the book, you know, and the first book took me three years to write. I was wow. always wondering, like, you know, like, is anyone going to want to read this? You know, um, I'm going to keep writing it the way I want to. But, you know, you sort of wonder whether it's working. Yes. And unlike a lot of other writers, I really didn't share this with many people at all. Mm. Um, you know, really no one at all. I was, was writing sort of in secret in between doing my other projects. And, and so it was really a surprise, you know, when I began showing it to other writers to, to get the sort of the, the very positive response that I did. So you wrote the whole book before you uh, took it to an agent or publisher? I wrote actually about 70% of the book. Right. And I showed it to a friend who, you know, who was a, quite an acclaimed writer. Mm. And I said, you know, I, I, I've been working on this. Will you please take a look at it? And, and I think she rather reluctantly said she would. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then about a week later, she called me. This was in November. And she said, Kevin, you've ruined my Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. You know, I was supposed to cook a dinner for my family, and I didn't. I just couldn't stop reading your manuscript. Mm. You know, and she said, "What? Well, you know, what is your plan? You know, are you going to show this to an agent now? You need, you really need to show this to an agent now. Mm. And it was my belief that you really, you know, especially for first-time novels, you have to sell the complete manuscript. Yeah. Um, so I said, well, you know, maybe when I'm done in a year or so, you know, I'll, I'll do that. And she said, no, you need to get it to an agent now because wow. it's so timely. Yes. It's so original. And it's so good that you need an agent to help you sort of really shape it and shape the end and really strategize and and bring this to market now versus three years from now, you know. So she really pushed me um, in that direction. And and I'm I'm so thankful that she did that because it got the ball rolling in a very speedy way. So you say it took you three years to write and you wrote in secret. Tell us what you were doing at the time and how you fit it in. Did you wake up early? Did you do it late at night? Did you do it, you know, like, how, how did it work? Well, I, you know, I was working as a creative consultant, and so I had a variety of different projects with different clients. Um, and I would say most of the book actually took place within one year. 
in 2011. Right. Was it 2000? I'm trying to get the timing right. Yeah. Around then, I, I spent a year working for Oprah Winfrey, mm. the, you know, the TV personality, and I was uh, producing a book, a coffee table book, about her TV show. Right. It was celebrating, you know, commemorating 25 years of her TV show. And so I was commuting from New York to Chicago almost every week. And, you know, travel in the U.S. is just horrid. Mm-hmm. You spend so much time. There's so many airport delays, mm-hmm. things like that. So I had so much time to kill in airports, in hotel rooms, waiting for things to happen. And I just brought my laptop along, and I was just writing in my spare time. And in the hotel room at night after I got back from work, I would just – it was something to keep me occupied, I think. Mm-hmm. Yes. You, know, in, 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 you know, while I was dealing with another very frenzied project, publishing project, but, you know, that, that worked a very different muscle in me. So I would say that I would – Probably 60% of the book was written in that year mm. um, when I was doing that commuting and having that time sort of it, allowed it sounds, me to do that. sounds like you wrote it in snatched times, like in, you know, in hotel rooms and while you were traveling and stuff like that. You didn't necessarily have to block off, here's three weeks, I'm going away, I'm going to immerse myself in the book. Sounds like you just wrote it on the go. Yeah, right? that, that wasn't the case, for, at least for the first 70%. You know, mm. after I showed it to an agent... Um, and the response was very positive. You know, she said, I want you to finish this in a month. Wow. You know, can you please finish this in a month? Because, you know, she explained sort of the selling schedule for how books are sold. And she said, you know, if we don't sell this by the summer, um, you know, we'll have to wait till the fall. And then it means another year, at least before the book comes out. And she, and and she just really felt that it should come out as soon as possible. You know, so I, I rose to the challenge, and I did block off the time. And actually, I wrote most of it in Australia. Really? Um, actually, yeah, I had I, I, made plans already to be in Australia. Um, I, I, I visit Australia, you know, every couple of years. Mm. And um, a, a very friend, a good friend, very kindly offered me, you know, her apartment mm. um, in Cremorne Point. Oh, yeah. Very quiet, with a view of the ocean. And I spent about three weeks there just hammering it out, the last right. 30% of the book. Great. So with the second book then, China Rich Girlfriend, did you, uh, you know, were you caught up doing other things? Uh, Presumably you didn't have to write it in snatched moments on airplanes. Did you lock yourself away and and write this one? That I did because based on, you know, the success of the first book, they really were rushing me for the second book. Right. And so I, I had to basically sort of drop everything else and, you know, say no to a lot of other projects you know, from my consulting business and say, you know what, I'm going to really do this full time. You know, I've been given this opportunity. There's demand for a sequel. The readers are demanding it. My publisher's demanding it. So I really, I did take the year off and do nothing but write. So that was a very different process. And yes. there I had to impose a whole new discipline and a schedule you know, for myself to really sort of churn it out, you know, and really meet my deadlines. So tell us about that discipline. Did you um, aim to write a certain number of words per day or think I will write this chapter this week or did you have a routine? I created a routine. I didn't want to give myself limitations. You know, I, I really wanted to, to, to sort of let, let the story be told and, and to come out the way it wanted to. Mm. Um, so I just said, you know, I'm going to write every morning starting at 8 a.m. and I'm uninterrupted until 1 in the afternoon. Mm. And so I would do that every day. And then at one, that's when I actually turned on my phone, began to check my email. I took a lunch break, you know, and the afternoon we'd spend sort of dealing with, you know, other life, (laughs) other life work things and 
and things like that. And then I would go back to writing in the evenings. Right. And did you um, did you have this plot already plotted out before you started the book, or did you kind of decide to see where it took you? Well, it was a challenge actually for book two because I knew how I wanted the book to end. Right. So book three very much is, is already conceptualized and, and pretty much written in my head. But book two really was the bridge between that. And I knew there were certain themes I wanted to explore and territory that I wanted to explore. I wanted to set the book mainly in mainland China. Mm. Um, so there was a discovery process in the writing. Um, so the plot wasn't set. You know, there was a loose outline but it did change quite a bit as I wrote it. And, you know, it's, it's, it's funny what they say when writers, you know, before I really sort of began writing novels seriously, writers would always say, you know, your characters really start to lead you places. They start to talk back to you. They start to challenge you. And I never believed that until I, I really began writing myself. Mm. And the book, well, both books, uh, explore, as you say, the uh, elite in Asia, the moneyed in Asia. And uh, there's so so many um, incidences in there which are almost hard to believe, yet they are believable. Uh, Is this the world that you occupy or occupied? Very much not the case. <laughs> I would say, I would say, as a child, yes. You know, I grew up in a privileged background in Singapore, but after moving to the U.S., you know, life became very, very normal. And you know, for the past twenty years, I lived in New York and working in in publishing and design. It's, it's a pretty normal life. I, you know, I don't fly around in private jets, you know, or, or get chauffeur driven in Rolls Royces or things like that. Um, but when I did go to Asia, I had access to that world. And I would see that world, you know, um, just by virtue of, of, of the friends and the relatives that I had. Um, and I would see the that world become more and more extreme year after year. Mm. You know, I would say, you know, in the, in the late 80s when I would visit Hong Kong, for example, you know, the friends would be driving Mercedes. Um, you know, in the 90s, they would upgrade to Rolls Royces, <laughs> you know, and then in the 2000s, they weren't even there because they were jetting around the world in their private planes, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so it just got increasingly more decadent. Uh, apart from the lavish wealth, you have a keen sense of, you know, observation of humans and the kind of things they say and the kind of things that they do. And and as you say, you're quite visual. So even, you know, the kind of things they wear and what it says about them. Uh, is, is that something that you, you know, while you're in that world, do you take notes or do you just remember this stuff or how did you get all of that detail because there's a lot of detail onto the written page i think first of all i have a photographic memory so in terms of visual details and remembering scenes and occasions and incidents that have happened you know i I remember that very well um and i suppose you know snippets of conversation have just stayed with me. You know, when someone says something truly outrageous, <laughs> you tend to remember it. And the thing with these people is that they're saying outrageous things all the time. <laughs> so, yeah, sometimes I would covertly go away and go to the, into a bathroom and, and say, I have to write this down now, <laughs> you know. Um, so in, in many cases, there, there is real dialogue that I actually have overheard that makes it to the book. But a lot of times, it's, it's dialogue that's completely fictionalized yes. based on situations and based on, on what I think the character might say. Yes. Um, and all, of course, inspired by real personalities. 
<laughs> I have to say, I, I, I read it kind of um, with a smirk on my face because I, I'm reading it and I'm thinking, oh, I have an Auntie Lillian. Oh, she lives in Leone Hill. I know a Methodist pastor called Tony G. This is really weird. <laughs> it was just the bizarrest experience. <laughs> Reading this. Well, there really is a a Methodist pastor named Tony Chi, and he was actually head of a church in Sydney for many years. Oh, I know Um, him. I know his sons, Jonathan and Jeremy. Absolutely. You know, they're you know they're they're quite famous in Sydney. I mean, it's a very accomplished family musically, and also you know. Yes, I wonder if they know. Do they know they're in this book? I must tell. I I I have no idea if they do, but um, (gasps) you know, Tony Chi was my pastor growing up when I was a child. Right. And then of course, whenever I came to Sydney, we would go to his church and, and visit. Him, you Good know. Lord, we've um, probably met. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, well, anyway, that's a conversation for after the recording. Um, exactly. <laughs> so. But yeah, you know, there, there are lots of snippets of real people and real truth that that make it into the book, which I which I think lends it that 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 fun, you know. Um, and believability. Uh, there's, there's a famous American socialite, for example, that I decided to put in the book. I decided to invite, you know, to, to put her in the wedding scene. And I actually met her when the first book came out. She came to one of my readings and said, you know, I don't remember being at a, at a wedding in Singapore. I thought I was losing my mind. <laughs> I mean, she was teasing me about that. So um, it's funny how the real people have come out of the woodwork right. and sort of really embraced the book. Really. It's, it's that level of detail, though, that it, despite the bizarre excesses, make it believable. In, 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 in my view, anyway. Um, what would your advice be to aspiring writers who, um, you know, they're, they're wanting to get their first novel out there and they're plagued with that self-doubt, that self-doubt you just spoke of? What do you think they can do? You know, I think you should really, you know, writers should really do everything they can to combat the self-doubt. And really, with the self-doubt, the self-censorship, you know, um, because I didn't intend that first, when I first began writing the book, I didn't really think of the marketplace and I wasn't strategizing, you know, about really trying to get it published. I was just trying to tell the story I wanted to. Yeah. I was able to kind of go wild mm. and, and take the sort of creative license I probably wouldn't have if I was approaching the book as a publishing consultant, you know, or as an editor. Mm. Um, I, I really sort of went there in terms of kind of describing the bizarre incidents that happened and, and really sort of being completely, you know, sort of the brand name diarrhea, I call it, you know, <laughs> that sort of infuses the book. Yes. Um, you know, the, the real me or the professional me would say, oh, no, I would never write that. You know, that's just so distasteful and tacky and vulgar and this and that. But in freeing myself to really kind of tap into what I call tap into my crazy, <laughs> you know, I think I was able to write something that was original that sort of got the attention of the publishing community. Um, Even the name of the book, you know, I mean, that was Crazy Rich Asians. I really feel that if I hadn't named it that, it might still be a manuscript collecting dust on some agent's, you know, pile. Yeah. What gave you the courage to tap into your crazy? Because as you say, when you have had the experience of producing books and being a publishing consultant or whatever, you, you know the framework. What gave you the courage to write what, you know, write that you know I honestly don't know (laughs) you know I I wish I could pinpoint one thing you know I think it's um I think the fact that I was a bit older when I wrote this book Mm, also helped you know I think if I had been 23 years old and fresh out of you know my my creative writing program 
I wouldn't have sort of been as audacious, yeah. you know, but, ha- you know, with, with the passage of time and some experience, you're like, you know, but it's sort of now or never, mm. you know, do you want to be true to your voice or do you want to make work to impress others? Mm. You know, and, and I just wanted to write something that I thought would, would be funny for me and that would amuse me, yes. you know, and really kind of go into these flights of fancy and really sort of explore the folly, you know, to, to the nth degree as much as possible. So, and I think uh, that was the salvation of the book. Oh, absolutely. What is um, your plan now in terms of are you going to write full-time or are you still um, keen on doing like your design and publishing projects that you did before? What, what's the plan now for your career? Well, I'm trying to work that out <laughs> because, you know, frankly, you know, I, I've, it's been this three-year roller coaster ride ever since the first book launched. I, you know, I... I've, immediately was touring for that internationally. And then I came back to New York and, and had to write book two, you know, on the deadline. Yeah. And book two has just, you know, was just released a few months ago. So I've been on tour since then promoting that. So I'm really at a point now where I'm, I'm for the first time, just sort of having some breathing room mm. and trying to think what's next. You know, I do want to, to write the third book, mm. but I think it's, that's also contingent on, on the, the economics of what happens in book two. You know, I haven't been signed up to write book, book three yet. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, with the way publishers work these days, they want to see how well your sure. books perform. You're only as good as your next book. Um, you know, so I'd like to write book three, but we'll see what happens. Well, trust and, me, um, book two is going to go nuts. It's fantastic. And I highly recommend that if anyone is interested in uh, a, a compelling novel that is laugh at, also laugh out loud funny and is truly unique because... As you say, no one's written in this kind of genre before. Um, definitely get China Rich Girlfriend. So Thank you so much for recommending that. Um, oh, I'd recommend yeah. that they start with Crazy Rich Asians first. It would make well, a lot of sense. Yes, of course. Um. <laughs> but <laughs> um, as I say, but, yeah. it, is, it is a standalone book. But interestingly, yeah. I, I think I sent my team to about five different bookshops in Sydney and Crazy Rich Asians is sold out so <laughs> um, from everywhere. But, uh, you know, you can buy it on Kindle. Uh, but, yeah, the latest book is China Rich Girlfriend. And um, thank you so much for your time today, Kevin. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. So there you go, Kevin Kwan. I, I'm i still a little bit shocked about your connections. <laughs> yeah, well, we spoke about that actually uh, after the recording. Uh, uh, you know, it, it, we extended our conversation on that. And, yes, it turns out it's, it's the same person and he knew the same family and uh, we our paths probably did cross, uh, you know, in, in our teens and when we were growing up. So because he, it seems that his mother was good friends with um, the, the man in question, Tony Chi, who I only saw a few weeks ago at uh, – not that long ago, my grandmother's 90th. So there you go. How weird's that? <laughs> anyway. Mind let's... blown. Oh. All right. Moving on. What have you got for me? Well, I have a ab, an app pick for this week. And it's not specifically a writing app pick, but it's one that is certainly very handy. It's one that we uh, that I use and a lot of people that I know use, and it's called Asana, A-S-A-N-A.com. And essentially, it's like a task management uh, program. And I know that there, there are a lot of task management programs out there and applications out there, but this is particularly useful if you, you know, if sure, if you want to do your own tasks, but if you're collaborating with somebody. So for example, um, I 
I might be collaborating with you on a book, you know, and we might allocate each other different sections, but there might be a workflow thing where you have to write one bit and then in Asana, that can be assigned to you. But when you're done, you can actually then assign it to me and write me a little comment and say, I've now done this bit over to you. Make sure you cover X, Y, and Z. And once that done, that's done, I might say, I might re, I might assign it back to you and say, okay, I've now finished it. Can you please um, edit and proofread my section or whatever? So mm-hmm. Asana is just really useful because you can not only assign certain tasks and jobs to people, you can put um, deadlines in and you can then mark the task as complete when it is complete, but you can also have a conversation. It's like a running conversation with each other so you don't have to back and forth with emails all the time. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's quite a good one, Asana. Excellent. Thank you for that. So let's move on to our working writer's tip. I have a good question for you to pose to you. Okay. I'm referring to, because we've got the magazine, you know, freelance writing theme this week. I didn't know we were doing a theme until we got to this yeah, point. Yeah, it just, and it just turned yeah. out that way. Okay. So, so this question is in relation to when you're researching your magazine articles. I'm not talking about when you research a book, which is a different answer. Mm-hmm. But it's how do you tell when you've done enough research? Mm. Mm. Hear that dead silence out there? <laughs> mm. What an interesting question. Mm. I think when all my questions are answered. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like I think when the main questions that I need answered to actually write the story mm. are answered. But generally speaking, it comes down to this. I think a thousand words, all right, I'm going to need two experts minimum. Mm. I'm going to need three case studies maybe, yes. maybe two. depends on the magazine. So I've got to do those. So once I've done those bits, mm. I then need to maybe look up, you know, find a couple of stats if, it, if the experts haven't supplied them. Mm. And then that's it. I've, I've got it. It's all there because I'm only writing a thousand words. I think it's second nature to people like us who have been doing it for so many years that we know what research to find out. We can pinpoint the kind of research that needs to be found out. Okay, good. Do you want to explain how other people should do it then? Well, I'm not sure myself because I can't remember. But this is a question that people have asked. So I thought your wisdom would come through in this podcast. Look, I I honestly think that – I honestly think it comes down to – do I have the answers to the questions I need? Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like mm. has someone given me a quote that answers the question? Like the Because, you know, any story is going to have, you know, five main questions or whatever, you know, who, mm. what, when, where, why, if you want to bring it down to that. Mm. As long as you've got the information that you need to answer those questions and write a thousand words, because sometimes, you know, it can get all get a bit light on and that mm. makes it harder. But as long as you've got that, as long as you've got those details, don't do any more. Mm. <laughs> I, su- I suppose it also comes down to, um, well, determining what your angle for the story is and then yeah. working out the key questions that surrounding that angle. But yes. also getting making sure you have diversity in your research so that all the stats aren't from one place. That's right. And you need and you need at least two voices. So you're going to need both sides of this. You know, you're going to need two two perspectives on Mm. that subject you can't just write you can't interview one person and write the entire story based on what they tell you and even if that person has tons and tons of research behind them you can't do that yeah no you can't you you either need to find someone else to back them up Mm. so that you've got an actual yes you know there's a consensus here Mm. or you need someone else to say actually no that's Mm. not right at all so yeah I think it's you know I, I 
I think it's, it comes down to like read a lot of feature articles yep. and get a feel for the kind of depth that other people are using yep. as well. I think that's a really helpful thing to do. And let's say it's, you know, on heart disease in middle-aged men just okay. for argument's sake. Yeah. I think that one mistake that freelance writers make is they feel that they need that new freelance writers make is that they feel they need to go in depth and suddenly become experts themselves in no. heart disease on in middle-aged men. Whereas really it's a matter of finding the expert and interviewing them and making sure you understand what they are saying. Yeah. You Asking don't have the to... dumb questions. Yeah. You know, ask the dumb questions because the dumb questions will give you the basic information that you need. Yeah to explain the subject to readers. That's yeah. what you're trying to do. You're trying to explain middle-aged heart disease, whatever, mm. to readers. And so you need to ask the dumb questions. But you don't need to put every single one of those dumb answers into the actual story. Yes, yes. Mm. And also a, a big tip of mine is never sort of if you're interviewing somebody and they're, they're telling you about heart disease in middle-aged men and you don't understand what they're saying but you kid yourself into thinking if I listen to the recording later, oh, then yeah. I'll understand. You no. you won't. You no. need to understand there and then. So if you don't understand, keep asking the questions. Keep uh, just. I I will often say to people, I need you to pretend I'm a twelve year old and explain it to me. Exactly. Or you need to say, so is this what you mean? Yes. And, and repeat have it them back. Repeat it to you. Or you need to, you need to be able to because you want it in the simplest possible. Um, terms because sometimes you're dealing with really complicated subject matter yeah. and you're trying to distill it down to a thousand words and it's it's not easy like don't never underestimate how difficult that can sometimes be like yes. people who do that well are very very skilled at what they're doing and sometimes it comes down to that I don't understand a single word of what you just said <laughs> can you explain it to me yes like I'm eight exactly. yes sometimes and, it comes down to that and what's your advice to people if people say well I mean, some places to get certain types of research or statistics is, you know, obvious, but, uh, you know, like the population of Australia, you'd probably go to the Australian Bureau of Statistics. Mm. However, there are some topics where, you know, heart disease in middle-aged males, where would people go? Like, where, or what should people avoid? What's your advice on where, what would their, on what thought process they should have to think of where can I get reputable, good mm research slash statistics? Well, you look for official sources. Yes. Like Heart Foundation and people like that. Like we're talking about heart disease kind of stuff. You look for those. You look for universities. And when I say universities, I mean reputable Australian universities, not random online yes, you know, yes. um, stuff. Um, you look for studies that are cited and sourced and you go to the source and you double check that the actual, you know, whatever it is you've just read is what's actually in the source because yes. sometimes what you find is that it's been reported on somewhere mm. and that reporter's got it wrong. Yes. So you need to make sure that you actually go back to the source material and it's all there. Like the thing is, yes. and, and these days with the internet, they just link it all for you so you can just follow it all back. Do not go to Wikipedia. No. I will tell you that right now. Mm. Or if you are going to go to Wikipedia, follow the source. Go, go to the source, All the way yeah. back, all the way back. Yes. And, um, and find that. But, yeah, so you're looking for official you know, foundation-y type things and associations, you're looking for universities and you're looking for the source material of any statistics that you've ever 
you know, that you found. And I'm glad you said that because I can't stress that enough to go to the source because I know a lot of writers who say to me, oh, yeah, I just read it. I I, I read that statistic on so-and-so's blog and -and so-and-so sourced, uh, you know, referenced the original reputable organisation. And I say say to them, but did you go back to the original reputable organisation to double check because they might have got it wrong? Mm. So, yeah, I'm glad you said that. Very Mm. important. Anyway, so we accidentally had a freelance writing theme this episode. <laughs> How hilarious. <laughs> so we'll do something different next episode, but we mm. hope you enjoyed it. What are you doing this coming week? Oh, just stretching. I'll just be doing that overextending <laughs> that we talked about earlier tonight. Um, no, I'm, I'm, you know, I'll be tweeting madly about my, you know, revamped websites and things like that. So yes. that sort of stuff. Very and um, yeah, just I'm just working really hard yes. at the moment. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. And you, what are you doing? Apart from reading 270 short <laughs> stories of 3,000 words each, um, I will be, uh, I'm speaking at the ad tech event uh, the, called Content Collective um, coming up in Sydney mm-hmm. uh, about content marketing. Um, I know that's a dirty word to some people, but, you know, it's just part of the vernacular now. It's like mm-hmm. breathing. Um, so I'm that should similar. be fun. It'll be interesting to, it'll be, <laughs> it'll be interesting to uh, hear the discussion and the conversations. But, um, but yeah, I, I suspect I'm going to be swamped with all these short stories, really. I think you're going to be like up to your ears in short stories for weeks. Oh, yes. But... I won't read another short story <laughs> after that. But anyway, uh, where do we find you online? Ow. Well, you'll find me, you know, bleating about my overextension on um, Twitter at, at Al Tate, A-L-T-A-I-T. You'll find me on Facebook at Alison Tate Writer. And you can find all of my social media fun at and links and blog at alisontate.com. Wonderful. And you? You'll find me on Twitter at Valerie Koo, K-H-O-O. Also on Instagram under the same name and on Facebook, Valerie Koo. So, um, yeah, come and connect with us. We'd love to hear from you. If you have 30 seconds to leave us a link or, I mean, not a link, a review or a rating on mm. iTunes, we'd really appreciate it. And uh, make sure you listen to the end because you, there's an opportunity for you to win some books. So until next week, we look forward to talking to you then. Bye. This week's giveaway is Bleak Boy and Hunter Stand Out in the Rain by Stephen Herrick about an 11-year-old boy tackling the many problems of life, including fitting in at a new school. Visit writerscentre.com.au slash win for your chance to win. Entries close Monday 28th September 2015, but if you're listening to this podcast in the future, don't worry. There'll be a new book giveaway at writerscentre.com.au slash win that you can check out. In the meantime, if you're looking for the show notes to this episode, go to writerscentre.com.au slash podcast. <laughs>